Hi everyone, Brandon here with a quick word before the podcast. Glass Tire is a nonprofit publication that exists thanks to the support of readers and listeners like you. We know times are tough right now, but if you're able, we could really use your help. By visiting glasstire.com donate, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly sustaining donor to our publication. All of the money we get goes right back into our coverage of Texas and its artists. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening, and here's today's podcast. Hello, and welcome to Glass Tire and this week's Art Dirt. Art Dirt is our uh, bi-monthly podcast where we talk about topical art topics, as we put it. I am Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zeck. And this week we are talking about Nature Unleashed, art and disasters. And we're doing this because it's timely. Uh, we just uh, Houston just had a pretty near miss for a pretty big hurricane. And um, we all kind of, you know, earlier... In this last week, we all started to kind of get ready for it psychologically and physically, and um, it was pretty close. And we've been checking in with Beaumont. We've been trying to get in touch with Orange. We're, we, as far as we know, uh, AMSET, the museum in Beaumont, is okay, mm-hmm. at least as of this uh, recording. But we want to talk about the way art communities survive or um, struggle with you know, natural disasters and climate change. And we've got fires all over California right now. We've had hurricanes blow into New York City in the last 10 years. We've had, you know, water damage, fire damage, flood damage, electrical damage, tornadoes going through Fort Worth and Dallas. I mean, you know, so many of these heavily, densely populated areas, that's where the art is. That's where the art communities are. And um, I don't know. Let's take a look at this. One of the interesting things to me about kind of this conversation as a whole, and also I think what makes this conversation interesting and unique to Texas is that those of us along the coast of Texas or that are in East Texas, South Texas, Houston included, we really think about things like hurricanes. Like hurricanes are kind of our biggest natural threat, our biggest natural disaster threat. Um, And we're reminded of that every summer. Uh, Of course, Hurricane Harvey in 2017 was like a big, uh, a very big reminder of that for Houston and for Rockport and for Corpus Christi and all, all of the cities kind of in between that got hit. But the other major cities in Texas, when I think of... Austin, San Antonio, Dallas-Fort Worth. Like, Dallas-Fort Worth get tornadoes every now and then, but even so, the rest of the Texas Triangle doesn't deal with that many large-scale disasters on a constant basis like the coast of Texas does. So Texas has a weird relationship with this because I feel like it's hyper, like those of us on the coast are hyper-conscious of it, whereas the rest kind Mm -hmm. of inland part of Texas may get rain and things from hurricanes, but it's a little, it's a little on the back burner. It's less on people's minds. It is, although, you know, there have been terrible floods and fires throughout central Texas. The Wimberley kind of floods around 2015, that was very bad. And then fires that, that blew through uh, the whole country and destroyed parts of uh, areas west of Austin, etc. Oh, the remains of those are still visible whenever you drive from Houston to Austin. There's pieces of land that have just been completely devastated and haven't ever really recovered. Yeah, Texas is a really special case because we've got um, 
we have wind and ice storms and tornadoes and um, and dust storms and such up in the Panhandle, and then tornadoes throughout all of Tornado Alley, which extends down through North Texas, and then we've got the fires and the floods of Central Texas, and then we've got the hurricanes on the coast. We have drought in West Texas, terrible droughts. We can even have yeah. droughts on the coast, um, but... What are what are some of the implications of this? One is that things seem to be, uh, you know, these sort of um, events seem to be ramping up as the globe gets hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. But you know, what are what are the kind of disaster preparedness plans? You know, of New York City. You know, Chelsea after um, Sandy was in a lot of trouble. The Chelsea galleries flooded. A lot of them did. Um, and then as Chelsea kind of migrates out of Chelsea and moves to Tribeca and other parts, Tribeca is not not prone to flooding. Um, <laughs> if you look at a map of Manhattan. Uh, and the flood zones or the uh, areas that are most uh, prone to flood during any kind of hurricane type disaster, mm-hmm. Tribeca's right in, right in it. So I, you know, I don't. It's kind of a testament to their optimism, and also um, something else. I'm not even sure what that <laughs> we just continue to to build and throw more money into uh, coastal towns and cities because it's already there. I mean, that's the fact. Is like some infrastructure is already there, and that's where people want to live. COVID may be changing that, uh, obviously, and there's a lot of discussion about that. But, um, you know, whether large, very dense cities are very appealing. But, um, Christina, when you bring up Sandy, because, I mean, because at this point it was, it was 2012, it was eight years ago, going back and preparing for this podcast and reading the coverage, the national coverage of Sandy and how it affected New York City as a whole, and specifically how it affected New York City's galleries and art spaces, I, I was I was renewed with surprise about it. Just I had forgotten how bad it was and that, mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like normally, because normally we see pictures of hurricanes on the coast it, it, and where we normally see subdivisions that are flooded or there, there's kind of an aesthetic there's a hurricane aesthetic and it's like the southern coastal u.s aesthetic like a city like houston to see huge highways that are underwater or houses that are underwater that it's jarring to see four feet of water in the streets of new york it's almost more jarring to see those images than to see like a car floating down i-10 in houston because I don't know, maybe maybe that's a sad revelation that we're just used to seeing those images at this point, but... Sure, and we think of New York City as being, you know, one of the, the high points of hu- human civilization and what human engineering is capable of, and so it's a very Planet of the Apes moment when you see New York City underwater. Um, it's very frightening. We've been talking about this uh, article that appeared in The New Yorker, a famous article at this point, uh, in July of 2015 called The Really Big One, by mm-hmm. Catherine Schultz, and it's about a gigantic earthquake that is, you know, very overdue in the Pacific Northwest, the, the Cascadia earthquake. And she goes into such grave detail about how it will unfold for people living there. And it is so, it is so horrific. I mean, it's worse than any horror movie. <laughs> I reread yeah. it this morning, and I was like. Oh my gosh, we're so not ready. No one's ready. And now, right now, I, I think a lot of people are like, well, FEMA, I mean, what can it even do, especially under the current administration? Like, what is its power? What is its agency? Um, if Houston had had a disastrous hurricane, it would have been, what, day before yesterday or kind of the night before last. And we're recording this on a Friday. We certainly wouldn't be recording this podcast right now. And, and I don't know. <laughs> 
during COVID and a recession that's being caused by COVID and a hurricane, I, think, I mean, I think a lot of people are like, how much worse can things be? I th I'm sure people in California right now who have had to evacuate their homes um, mm -hmm. are asking these questions. Christina, you alluded to global warming earlier, and one of the, you know, one of the things around this, I think, that also kind of makes it jarring is the fact that, well, you know, not that global warming uh, affects the, the tectonic plate movement that much, but that the the once in a lifetime or the big ones, as we call the the hurricanes, the the earthquakes, like the bad fires. We've had a lot of big ones in the last 20 years alone. Like in the last 20 years alone, we've had numerous once in a century storms that are named as such when they happen, but then they just happen again in a different place. And then it's that place's once in a century event, you know, and it almost reminds me, uh, there's a really great book called A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. And he describes what it would be like if Yellowstone, the volcano that's under Yellowstone, if it were to erupt. And it's just mm -hmm. yeah. utter and total immediate devastation. And that very much mirrors the uh, unfathomable destruction in that New Yorker article you mentioned. Because when these writers describe these once in a lifetime, once in a generation, once in multiple generation events, it's it's the likes of which there's no way to imagine. Like, it, it sounds like it's screenwriting for a really bad apocalypse movie. Yeah. And, it, I mean, these things just live so large in the imagination of pretty much everyone who lives on the planet because almost everyone lives in the lives in the path of some possible disaster. I mean, with earthquakes come tsunamis. With earthquakes and hurricanes come, obviously, tremendous. I, there's a lot of flooding with almost any natural disaster because water mains break, um, mm -hmm. because there are electrical fires. You know, even tornadoes can cause um, a lot of damage far beyond what just the wind does to structures. Um, I think we've put a tremendous amount of faith in the idea that the cultural memory of people and the art that we are creating as a civilization that, you know, what, what have we done to, um, to ensure that we know what we had? And this mm -hmm. is, this is a question that's kind of, it's a larger existential question. And then you start to get more specific, even when you come to large institutions. And then, of course, as individuals and individual artists trying to protect their own legacies and their own work. I was thinking about the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you yeah. know, very carefully photographing every single thing that it has in its collection, including every little tiny scarab beetle. And um, having a repository for those images that's somewhere off site. We don't know even where it is, I don't think. Um, and why should we? But in case of natural disaster or a terrorist attack or something similar like that, we need to know what was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We need very, very high-resolution images of that. But, I mean, if you take that uh, way of functioning and you transfer it to individual communities and individual artists, what are you looking at? There's, a, I think, a pretty handy graph um, that HAA, uh, it's a PDF. We'll link to it on the, uh, the post for this. It's like, here's some basic things you can do if you're an artist with a studio uh, ahead of a hurricane. And these are, I mean, some of the tips are similar to what the Metropolitan is doing. is like uh, archive everything you've got and have good um, files and keep some of those files off-site in a place that's not likely to be 
destroyed by fire or flooding or whatever comes with massive hurricanes. Hurricanes yeah. are new to me. I, you know, I haven't lived here for that long, but ahead of this last hurricane, I did have people here in Houston and elsewhere calling and texting and saying, are you ready for this? And, and I realized, uh, just how psychologically embedded it is into coastal people. That's interesting, Christina, that you felt that way because, I mean, I've, I've lived in Houston for all my life. You know, I've been through a few hurricanes. Of course, I went through Harvey. And I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like people definitely do feel that way. But I almost feel that there might also be some sort of subtle nonchalance around hurricanes just because we're used to seeing them. Um, I, I feel like that might have been jarred a little bit after Harvey because of how bad it was. But... I don't know. In general, I feel like when a hurricane's coming, we hear a lot about it in the the two days before it hits, which granted, these things are building up in the Gulf and also their path is a little less known. But we know that it's hurricane season and they're out there. And I feel like there's not a lot of talk until it's kind of imminent, which again, you don't Mm. want to get upset or concerned over nothing. But at the same time, I don't know, with the intensive history (laughs) that our coastal region has had with these that always kind of surprises me whenever a big one like this passes. And if, if it passes us by like this one did for Houston, there's always a, wow, that could have been bad. But then there's, (laughs) but then it's, that's kind of where the uh, self-reflection stops a lot of the time, which is really interesting. Again, I think I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I do think a lot of this changed after Harvey because people, firsthand knew people that were severely affected. A lot of artists knew artists whose entire backlog of work was destroyed. People knew, mm-hmm. uh, had friends and family members that were displaced from their homes. Um, that, that kind of, I think, reset everyone's mind about how laissez-faire they're going to be about it. Um, but Christina, you were mentioning the, uh, the HAA, the Houston Arts Alliance toolkit, and that actually is a thing that came out of Harvey, I think partially just because there were so many artists that needed the help and that wanted to know what actually uh, official guidance might look like, or the best way to prepare might look like a lot of the stuff in that kit, there's some really useful things, but a lot of it in the kit is also common sense, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's so interesting, again, because if we have become a little more laissez-faire and blasé about it and about preparing and worrying, then the common sense stuff is going to be the stuff that you really gloss over whenever you're preparing your studio. You know, like, like in the coverage of Hurricane Sandy in New York in 2012, um, there were some galleries that stored things on shelves kind of uh, higher up in the gallery, but the shelves weren't properly fastened to the wall. So then once the water mm-hmm. came in, you know, it pushed the shelf back and forth and things fell off of the shelf into the water. I mean, it's, it's basic things like that, that you install the bookshelf and you say, Oh, I'll, I'll attach it to the wall if I need to, or if I have a kid that could pull it down and then you eventually don't. And then you put stuff on the shelf thinking it's sturdy and then it falls down. Like, super basic common sense stuff, but it's the kind of thing you're not going to be thinking about if a hurricane is bearing down on you and you're just trying to save anything you can in any way you can. It's funny. It's because it kind of comes down also to just individuals and their disposition. I mean, some people are more prone to preparing and some people are kind of like, well, we'll just kind of see how it unfolds. I mean, for me personally, moving into an apartment in Houston, I had um, Harvey on my mind the entire time. And I've, you know, and as hurricane season started up this year, I was like, well, 
you know, where am I going to put my art? And I don't want to just leave it on the wall. Even just flat roofs and even regular roofs. I mean, water just will run down a wall. You can have all your paintings up on the wall and yeah. they're not safe just because they're on the wall. You've got to get that stuff out of there. And um, I remember before Harvey hit, I think this was before Harvey hit, I remember talking to you about what you had done with your artwork. Um, is mm-hmm. that right? Do you remember that conversation? I was like, well, where is it? Yeah, and, I remember we talked <laughs> where, about that. Have you got it all off the walls? And, da, 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 and I worry and I worry. And there's, you know, and if you think about it, if you live in an apartment complex and you're, you know, you're connected to other people, there's always possibilities of floods and electrical fires and things like that. There's the possibility, some of the articles that you and I were sharing uh, as we were prepping for this conversation were about um, art storage facilities and I was thinking about the Momart fire in London in 2004. The one place it's supposed to be safe. <laughs> yeah, the one thing, so Momart is the major, you know, really blue chip art moving and storage and prepared our company in London and one of their major storage facilities um, an arson hit it and I mean just and tens of millions of pounds worth of art was just, you know, burned up. Sometimes we don't know uh, what we're preparing for you know we don't we're not we're looking for the big one the big earthquake the big tsunami and not paying too much attention to the fact that like an f3 tornado may just blow through the middle of fort worth or dallas mm-hmm. um and what does that look like and and are we prepared i mean there's still a lot of damage in dallas from that tornado that went through in 2019 yeah that was like a 15 mile wide um pathway from roughly love field all the way up to richardson and it caused a lot of damage and you know, I think that a lot of us can be pretty blithe about, you know, my whole idea about tornadoes was growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth was that the huge, the big cities, something about the skyscrapers and the density and the concrete and everything kind of interrupts a weather pattern enough to where tornadoes might set down outside of cities, but not really right in the middle of cities. But they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do. Yeah. So... I don't know that anyone is really out of the way of danger. The communities themselves, where the population density is, I think that's worth having conversations about how do you protect your community. But then there's also the question of individuals protecting what they have. Well, in addition to the individuals kind of being able to deal with their own disasters, one of the things that I think Harvey really showed our Gulf Coast region is that there's a tendency for communities to really band together after events like this. We saw this in the wider communities of Houston and of Rockport, um, not just in the artistic communities, although there really were pockets of, you know, artists helping artists, conservators helping artists, like all of the little networks in individual communities grew together in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. And people all of a sudden rapidly expanded their capacity in order to be able to help whoever needed it. And that was mirrored in all of these smaller communities. So it just kind of became this rallying cry around a region and the ability of a region to bounce back. And I think it really bolstered recovery. And I think that's something that we've, I mean, I, I, I don't know how the reaction was. I wasn't on the ground in New York after Sandy happened, but I would imagine the same thing, the same rallying cry happened specifically within all of the different communities, but also within the artistic community. So while there are a whole lot of individual efforts behind it, the community push whenever something like this happens is something that you won't fully understand unless you've, unless you're in the middle of it. 
Yeah, and I I had an apartment in New York in nine eleven during nine eleven, and I mean the you you're right the psychological resilience of a place yeah. following a major disaster is really something. I mean, there's a giant shift in the in the air, and in the psychological profile of a place or a city or a community, and that's one hundred percent true. And I think that you know moving forward through disasters, including um, Harvey here, people if they realize that government infrastructure isn't enough to help them, then they do hop to. I mean, that's just what humans do. You know, they just become very community-minded. Yeah. This whole idea of doing to others as you would have them do to you is just very, very true. Um, I think that a couple of the sort of trends that we watch or look for or um, patterns that we see following disasters, there's a couple. One, and with Harvey this was definitely true, is that as far as I know, and I was editor at Glass Tower, although I was not living here during the time, but I mean, people didn't, you know, there was a real downtick in people going out to see art at, following Harvey until about December or January. So there was nearly kind of six months of a downturn in people even being able to really experience art. Mm-hmm. Now we've got COVID. Um, I think uh, the idea that things may just continue to become more do- nomadic or that art communities may push uh, further inland that, you know, you have to wonder what the major museums in New York City, as well as the major museums here in Houston, what what are they thinking in terms of what things will look like 25 years from now or 100 years from now? When the Manila yeah. builds a whole new building, a drawing center, what does it do to get ready for flooding? Because water really is one of the most disastrous things that can happen to art. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of one of the connective things that happens in, after almost every disaster, as I said. So, you know, when we're trying to look at the, like the year 2070, does Houston look anything like it looks right now? And mm-hmm. where is Houston in 2070? You know, yeah. has it mostly kind of moved itself northward? Um, well, and Christina, this kind of flows into a conversation about why so many of these major cities for art and for tourism and commerce are cities that are on the water. And it's because, I mean, it, it goes back to them being port cities and then being mm-hmm. hubs of people coming and going and exchanging goods and services and ideas. Um, you, you were reading a list before we got on about what was it? 10 cities that were some of the most vulnerable. Yes. The top, the 10 cities with the highest population exposure today mm-hmm. to flooding and hurricanes, um, Miami, greater New York, New Orleans, uh, Osaka, Tokyo, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Nagoya, Tampa, St. Petersburg, and uh, Virginia Beach. And there is a tremendous amount of art in these places. I mean, there's so much. There are museums, there are uh, artists, there are huge art communities in all of these places. And yes, the port cities have always been kind of where the people gather. I mean, think about Amsterdam. And I think Amsterdam has been kind of prepping for... Mm-hmm. you know, f- floods, et cetera, for a long time. But we, we haven't seen a major, major natural disaster hit Amsterdam in my lifetime. Um, might have to fact check that, but uh, not certainly in my adult lifetime. Yeah. Again, New York is New York is so vulnerable, and Los Angeles is so vulnerable due to earthquakes, especially. Um, the Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles was in 1994, um, I had artist friends who were living and working there and had studios there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they had everything destroyed. I knew artists who left Los Angeles after that because the idea of having to rebuild seemed nearly impossible. I don't know what it would look like now. I mean, we're so many years on from that. And of course, the LA art scene has been built up tremendously since 1994. What would happen now if a major earthquake struck Los Angeles? We hear things like, so recently, uh, some of the fires in California got pretty close to the Getty Museum. Um, And apparently Mm -hmm. the Getty was built with that all of that in mind down to like the air filtration, the landscaping, you know, I I think there's, I don't want to say a disconnect, but there's a, there's a hard argument for things like building against fires, which they can spring up really quickly, of course, but you can see them coming. There's kind of a solid defense against them and building up against the big one, (laughs) the earthquake that could hit Mm. LA, which, you know, it's it's kind of build your building to spec and hope and pray. Mm-hmm. I mean, when major freeway systems just topple, it's you're pretty much just, uh, you know, you kind of have a better sense of what you're actually dealing with. Um, I I think this is all. I mean, we're you know we're we're talking about this in the middle of a of a different kind of natural disaster or a man-made slash natural natural disaster, which is this virus. And um, there are a lot of different ways to define disaster and disaster for artists in our communities. Um, you know, we just reported on massive, you know, billion dollar losses in Texas and the Texas art economy mm-hmm. due to COVID and these uh, and these shutdowns. Um, we we don't need, we still don't know what things will look like this time next year. And whereas Harvey definitely um, kind of put the brakes on the art scene here for a little bit. Artists were able to eventually rebuild, although for some of them and some of the reporting that we did, you know, a year on, people mm-hmm. were still really getting their stuff together. I mean, it's it was a tremendous struggle. And now we're now we've got this. We've got COVID and we got COVID in the middle of a hurricane season, just like California. It's got COVID in the middle of its fire season. Yeah. I was reading about Venice and um, and how um, Venice tends to flood about 100 times a year. Did you know that? Right. They're, they're smaller floods, right? That just kind of go into the street a little bit. Yeah. Or they'll, they'll, they'll enter the town squares and the churches every once in a while. It's a phenomenon called, uh, aqua alta. And, uh, but of course there's been this, uh, tremendous kind of infrastructure, uh, project called the Mose project to protect Venice from essentially sinking into the ocean. But I mean, all of this is, you know, human history against, you know, global history. It's like Mm -hmm. you sent me an article about, um, uh, five times nature, uh, won over art. And some of these natural disasters took place, you know, in the 1800s, the 1700s, the, or BC even, Mm -hmm. you know, major cultural, uh, uh, monuments and, uh, things that have been completely lost due to natural disaster. Again, volcanoes being a very interesting part of that history. Mm hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that we don't really talk about that much in uh, the U.S. in terms of art and natural disasters is like historical structures, because in the U.S. we don't have, you know, the Pantheon and the Parthenon and these kind of ancient storied historical buildings. We have we have different kinds of structures that are related to the Native Americans that came up, but they don't have the same like international attention on them that these kind of storied, you know, Western, uh, places do. So 
it's interesting because there's really no way to protect those structures themselves from natural disasters, right? It, it's it's protecting a building versus protecting a painting. You can take a painting and you can put it behind, you know, in a humidity controlled thing with airflow systems and yada, 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 but you can't mm-hmm. protect the Parthenon. Nope. No. And I think this is just what, this is just what civilization does is it builds monuments and it builds, they build monuments to themselves and, and to whatever their culture is at the moment. And then things get swept away and, um, maybe history has recorded it and maybe history hasn't recorded it. And this has, you know, this is not even touching on what major international wars do to art and art monuments and, uh, museums and looting and, yeah. you know, never mind what humans are capable of, um, yeah. uh, terrorist attacks as we, as we, you know, worry about or whatever, but, Gosh, I mean, it's as the as the human race gets bigger and climate change gets worse and people continue to build and build and build and build. And again, I, I chalk some of that up to kind of optimism and a resilience. And I, I think some of it is just kind of oof, not paying attention to sort of common sense things. I mean, Miami, I think, is a pretty big uh, mm-hmm monument itself to people not paying attention to where things are going. But, um, at the same time, you kind of can't blame somebody for wanting to live in Miami. I mean, the climate there is awesome. (laughs) Do we want to put a lot of art there? I don't know. Well, that, that's the thing, right? These places are so kind of objectively dangerous for certain periods of time, but then for the rest, it's like, it's great. So that's, that's why, that's why this happens, right? It's, it's the the risk is worth it or you or you can't get out so the risk is just something that you have to deal with because what are you going to do uproot your entire life try and move somewhere where you don't have any connections you know you may not be able to do that for a number of reasons so you're just kind of stuck based on what your ancestors have either chosen to do or where they've been forced to go yeah that's right and so even in um this most recent hurricane laura that swept up into louisiana you know a lot of people people were asked to evacuate or uh, you know there was a lot of urging for different communities to evacuate and some people can't evacuate and some people won't evacuate and i have a very hard time uh blaming them for that i feel like um there are reasons why people stay put and these are individual reasons as much as their community reasons. And I just, I like to think that if you're, if you're an artist and you've got a lot of work that you've figured out a way to at least protect records of that work, whether it's in some sort of a, um, a cloud, um, uh, tech cloud or somewhere off site, but, and also that you just got some basic plans in place. I, I don't, I don't know that it's a good idea for newer coastal communities to bring in a lot of artwork that we would consider historically really important. And I think that New York city is, and Houston are both places that really need to contend with this. There's a lot of tremendous artwork here, um, in the institutions and, um, uh, and Los Angeles, of course, has its own its own uh, demons yeah. to deal with in terms of uh, disaster. So, the United States is one thing. Texas, in and of itself, is another. Um, it's a dramatic and exciting place to live, and it can also be a heartbreaking place to live. But um, it's nice to believe that we could all be in this sort of together. <laughs> the next time the a, a big one hits. Well, with that, there's always more that can be said about this topic and uh, I know everyone has 
thoughts about it, especially after Texas has gone through so much recently with the fires and the hurricanes and the uh, and the tornadoes up in Dallas and just everything else. Um, I'm sure this conversation will come up again. It's always going to be mm. relevant for better or for worse because we are mm-hmm. where we are. But, uh, Christina, any final thoughts? No, just stay safe. Keep your eye on the news. Um, you know, Space City weather here in Houston, I think, does a tremendous job. And, I, you know, we do what we can to, to help and to cover. There's a lot of uh, Harvey coverage that we did, a tremendous amount of Harvey coverage that we did when Harvey hit and in the months following. And we really do try to keep up with what artists are going through. And... Um, uh, and that'll be true going forward as well. And that's true of what's going on with COVID, um, actually. So mm-hmm. we'll keep an eye on it. You guys keep an eye on it. All of you maybe take a look at that HAA uh, PDF. We'll put a link to that in the post and um, make sure you're ready. Yeah, do it before uh, it needs to be done. So then you can just evacuate and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. With that, uh, everyone, see some art. See some art. <laughs>